Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Here's a fact. During the first three months of this year, nearly 1,200 people were locked in Cook County Jail than the same period the year before. So is that good news or bad news? Well, it all depends on who's out and who's in, doesn't it? And some key officials in the justice system don't exactly agree. We're going to talk with one of them this week. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this weekend is Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. He runs the second largest county sheriff's department in the United States after Los Angeles. This former state representative was first elected sheriff in 2006. He has proven to be an outspoken advocate both for law enforcement and for reform of the criminal justice system. Not all officials agree on everything, but as always, they are trying to work things out. Sheriff Tom Dart, welcome back. It is so great to be back here, Craig. Um, we have a lot to talk about, but let me first establish the background. Uh, no one's going to dispute that there are too many people behind bars awaiting trial on low-level drug offenses. Uh, for a substantial number of them, it is because they can't afford bail. So keeping them out of jail can be a good thing. That's why uh, Cook County Chief Judge Timothy Evans made an order about a year ago that directs judges to give nonviolent offenders a chance to be out on bond. What happens, though, if violent offenders are also out? We may answer that question and a whole lot more during this half hour. Sheriff Dart, so that I don't misstate any feelings that you have, I'll let you characterize what you see is is at least one problem with trying to release so many low-level offenders while they are facing charges. You know, Craig, you you nailed it pretty well there because I, I do believe that there was complete agreement from everyone that the system was horribly broken. And I was talking about forever. A lot of it was focused on the mental ill that we literally were just dumping people with a mental illness, inconsequential crime at best. And we were throwing them in there because there was no else to put them. And they sat there and it was just horrible. We really got our arms around that at the jail. And we're frankly the first in the country to really be talking about it and got a whole different mindset going on how to deal with people with an illness. But then we started talking about frankly, poor people, uh, because we also found that people with inconsequential cases that may not have had much of a mental health issue just didn't have $100 literally to get out. So the system was absolutely broken, no question about it. Um, I was calling for the reform to be one where we removed the, the money part of it too, so bad guys stayed in, people who just didn't have money got out. And I often told people the best way for me to have described it to people is before any of the bond changes went about, if you were someone charged with retail theft, so we'd all agree a minor crime, only 4%, 4% of those people were making bail. Whereas if you were charged with a gun offense, over 25% of them were making bond, even when the bonds were substantial. We'd have guys walking in with $40,000 in cash and putting it down. Here's a judge saying, this is a bad guy, $400,000 bond, you got to put 10% up. And he's walking in with $40,000 in cash. Whereas there's a, a guy who stole like a roll to eat, and he can't come up with $100. 
So it was like, okay, we got to get this money part of it out of it. People weren't excited with my proposal, and I get it. I don't have all the answers, but the different proposal came up. A lot of it's very good. A lot of it's very good, um, but it relies almost almost exclusively on an algorithm. And I have problems with algorithms because you remove the human factor. And we have some absolutely brilliant judges on the bond court. Uh, and the, the head of the bond court, right, and Judge Kirby, phenomenal, one of the best in the system. So there's good people there, but this tool that they use, it, it needs to be worked on because what we're experiencing is that, yes, thankfully, poor people, mentally ill, are not being warehoused in there. And my, my population in the jail, when I started uh, 13 years ago, I had 12,000 people in the jail. I'm under 6,000 people now. But here's the problem. That tool that they're using is not in any way accurately dealing with people who are caught with guns. People with guns are getting out in numbers that we have never seen before, and I think there should be complete agreement in the city. The last thing we need is more people with guns, particularly people with criminal backgrounds, being released out into the communities, and that's what we have now. Uh, I, When I have talked to some advocates for, uh, for bond reform and, and people in the chief judge's office, they've said that the way that they were designing not just the algorithms but the order that eventually came out it wasn't supposed to deal with people who were violent criminals that that those people are supposed to not be let out and that this is really for people who are you know drug possession mostly yeah and that's just it's just literally the, the numbers don't support that I have now had, this is just the increase in number of people that are being released onto home confinement. Mind you, my home confinement is a passive home confinement. All it does is alert me when you leave. It's not GPS or anything. And it always was designed, and everyone knows it, always was designed for drug offenders and you know small property crimes, retail theft, uh, uh, drunk driving type of cases. Now, though, just in the last year and a half, I think it is, I've had a 700% increase on people being put on electronic monitoring charged with aggravated discharge of a firearm, a 945% increase in people put on EM for being an armed habitual criminal. Um, I have had a 121% increase in people put on home monitoring who are charged with murder. Um, You know, those are things that the system of home monitoring wasn't designed for that. And so this algorithm, as I said, it's done some marvelous things, but it is overcompensated in some areas dealing with violence. And these are just numbers that are accurate. There's no, you know, new way to look at this thing. That's just, for the longest time, I never had a person charged with homicide on home confinement. Never. I mean, it just wasn't something that we ever had happen. And right now I have, um, I think it's 51 people charged with first-degree murder. Yeah, 51 people charged with first-degree murder. They're on home confinement. Is that the algorithm working or is that a judge's not quite understanding what home confinement is and what it isn't? I, I not only have I told every person on this planet in virtually every language possible what home confinement's about, we've put DVDs together, we've put flyers together, everything. It's explained to them this is what home confinement is. It's this passive system. I don't have officers out, you know, driving around the block making sure some of the We've had numerous cases where people on home confinement are murdered. They'll go out on their porch, and they're still within the radius, and they get shot on their porch. Um, so it's it's a system that was designed for nonviolent offenders, and it's gone in a completely different direction that 
We have said from the get-go, this was not what home confinement was designed for. And clearly, when everyone was talking about bond reform, there was no one in the room who ever said, you know, we need to get more gun offenders out on the street. Yeah, I, it, it, it strikes me as, as unusual how it evolved into that. Uh, was it Judge uh, Tim Evans' order that started the, that? And, I, and I'm not saying let's blame Judge yeah, Evans. And, and I'm not either. I, I, I think it was these collective things coming together with an over-reliance on an algorithm. Um, and so, you know, do things swing with the pendulum as far as, you know, certain judges, cause they, they put a whole new group of judges into the bond court. So they removed the other ones. Could there have been a philosophical shift too? Because judges bring their own personal, you know, thoughts obviously with them onto the bench. And so, um, could it have gone more liberal from a conservative? That's possible. I, I think more of it though is driven by this algorithm. And I, I do believe I, I've read some, um, information from the Arnold foundation, which was the group that was really engaged with coming up with the algorithm that they understand that there's some changes that need to be put in play here. And it's really, Craig, as a person who's advocating the loudest for saying we cannot lock people up because they're poor, they're mentally ill, um, I clearly don't want to go back to the days when we're throwing everybody into jails just because we want to get them out of our hair. No, but at the same point, there is no way to justify and there is absolutely no way to talk to our communities and say, listen, this is a good idea when people are charged with violent offenses. And I would suggest to you, we, that when those charges I mentioned to you, these are not just cases where someone was caught with a gun um, that, that has it for their own protection. These are all people with felony convictions in their background. These are people that have shot the gun at people. This is not so that when, if someone tries to confuse the issue, this is not a situation where a, a law-abiding citizen was driving with the car, but they don't have a concealed carry, but they have the, law, the gun lawfully. No, 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 no. That, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people charged who have felony convictions, aren't supposed to be around guns, people shooting guns at people, people you know, murdering people as well. So this has got to be rectified. Um, I also uh, heard from your office that uh, another issue is or so-called D-bonds. Explain what that, what, what are D-bonds? You know, it's always been a confusing thing to try to explain to the public because just the inherent workings of the criminal justice system are a mystery to most people. <laughs> D-bonds mean you have to put up a, some money. And in our system, it's always been you have to put up 10% of the money. Right. And so if it's a $100,000 bond, you got to come up with $10,000. Um, I-bonds, on the other hand, are individual recognizant bonds, which are, you don't, you just sign a piece of paper and basically you're promising you're, you're, you'll yeah. come back. Um, the number of I-bonds have increased dramatically. Most of that really good because these are people that shouldn't have to put up money because the offense is not serious in nature. Um, and the D-bond amount has dropped tremendously. That could be good, but someone really needs to look at those numbers. And that's what I always tell people. I go, listen, I'm not going to tell you about the pros and cons of D-bonds. I can just tell you the amounts of them, the amount of it overall has decreased. Could that be appropriate? Could be appropriate in the right case. I can tell you, though, when it comes to electronic monitoring, I know that better than anybody because I have all of the data. It's all accurate, and it shows numbers that don't make sense. And so that's where the D-bond part of it is good if it's being reducing the amount of money people have to put up for inconsequential cases and they don't pose any danger to the community. Um, if it's being done in a way where it's being attached to like gun offenses, for example, well, that's not really a good thing. Hmm. Um. Is this something that you believe uh, the stakeholders, to use that term I actually hate, Me too. Uh, I <laughs> but, but all of the people involved can actually sit down and work this out? Can this system, as it stands, 
be tweaked? Can the, the numbers be tweaked or the philosophy or the instructions be changed so that those kinds of people are not getting out? I, I would hope so. Um, but I will tell you that when I, I haven't been quiet about this. So this has been something where I've kept these numbers under my desk somewhere. Um, when I first brought this up over a year ago, I think it was now, oh my God, the, the pushback I got from everybody. I mean, literally, I mean, calling me names and everything else. I'm trying to undo bond reform, saying that I'm picking on certain communities, all these insane, insane response doesn't lead me to have a warm, fuzzy feeling that people are open to talking, frankly, frankly, not talking my version of the facts, talking about real numbers, real numbers that show this is who we have on home monitoring. Craig, it wasn't that long ago. I, I, I try to get the date, but I, it's a little fuzzy. But five, six, seven years ago, if I had one person on home monitoring charged with murder, my whole office is, is in an uproar. All right, what are we going to do? We'll put a car out in front of the house. We'll watch it around the clock because this is such an anomaly. I have 51 with murder. I don't know how many with attempt murder. Um, you know, my largest group of people always on home monitoring always was drug offenders followed by uh, drunk drivers and thefts and things like that. My number one category of people now are aggravated, unlawful use of a weapon. That's my largest group of people on home monitoring. Once again, the system wasn't even designed for these people, and that's my largest group. Mm. Um, while we're While we're at the jail, let's talk about one other issue there, because you ended solitary confinement three years ago. Uh, that was, uh, I uh, would... Yes, the most hated or feared punishment that an inmate could have. So how's that working out? Honestly, um, when I did it, I did it for a few reasons. Um, one of it was I read a lot, and I'd read about the impact on people being in these solitary settings and the damage it can do to people. I also was looking at the number of assaults that were on my own staff based on people who were in those type of settings. And I felt very strongly on many, many levels that this was not the way to go. And so my staff bought in. They were phenomenal. And the number of assaults on my staff have plummeted. It's the lowest it's ever been. The number of fights where inmates are fighting each other, lowest it's ever been in those max units as well. And it was all the things that I had hoped and somewhat predicted was going to happen if you start putting more thought into it. Because solitary ends up being just something where you just don't, you have a problem and just throw it in there, throw the problem in there and you just deal with it. And for me, it did make sense on so many different levels that I didn't even know where to start. But the one that I kept trying to drive home to people is that no matter where you are on this spectrum, as far as uh, law enforcement, corrections, whatever it is, liberal, conservative, so say you want solitary because you want to send a message or you want solitary because you want to uh, make it clear to this person that you know, this, you're an evil person. Whatever, whatever your perspective is, why are you solitary? Here's the difference, though. In jails, over 50%, I think it was 60%, actually, of the people who were going into a solitary setting were then going back to the community. I mean, so at least if you were like saying, boy, this is to teach them a lesson. And after they're done with their solitary in jail, they'll go down the prison system being solitary and they'll be there the rest of their lives, or whatever. No, solitary throughout this country are used on people who are literally walking right from a solitary setting back to their house. And how in God's name is that helping that community? When you have someone who's been literally locked in a you know five by eight concrete room by themselves with no human contact for months, I mean, my God, there's people around this country who've been in solitary settings for years, and then they're released in the community. 
what do you think is going to happen? I think it's just incredibly irresponsible people who run correctional institutions to not get engaged with understanding that there's better ways to do these. And we've done it, and we have all the proof. We have people coming all over the country now to watch how we did it. And I just can't say enough about my staff because, yeah, sure, I came up with the idea, but they have been absolutely amazing. Um, Two things. One, does it change the philosophy or the attitude uh, of the personnel if you're not coming down hard on people? Um, I mean, does it make them try to talk things through? Absolutely. It has been amazing. Our folks that we have working those units, which, mind you, I have a waiting list of staff who want to get into these units that traditionally were considered solitary. Now they have the people who normally would be in. They're out in open settings and things like that. They want to, and they are not um, separated by glass. They're actually in the living units with these detainees, and they talk to them differently. I can't tell you how many times I've watched them de-escalate things that traditionally completely would blow up. And they have, you know, sure, we put them in training. They have these tools. But honestly, just the rapport there is absolutely incredible. And these are the worst of the worst detainees. And this has just been something that, as I said, I'm just trying to preach this to everywhere I go because there's a way to do this and do it better. And it's going to help communities. It's going to help their staff. And to continue to do these other routes, it does none of the above. And I, I guess just very quickly, it also needs to be mentioned that the people you're housing are people who are accused of crimes and their cases haven't been decided yet. So they haven't yeah, necessarily been found guilty of anything. Yeah, and many people who would go into what you would call a solitary setting aren't even charged with a serious offense. They're charged with a minor offense, but they got into a fight or they tried to attack somebody or whatever it is. That landed them there. This notion that solitary is all for the triple homicide, axe murder and stuff, that never was the truth. These are people who are getting out and routinely going back who haven't been convicted yet and are routinely going right back into their community. We'll continue our conversation with Sheriff Dart in just a minute after this message. Welcome to Sinfron Explains. In lieu of our weekly digital marketing campaign tips, this Memorial Day weekend, we would like to honor our veterans, the men and women of the armed forces who have fought to preserve the freedoms we hold so dear. This is Jason Bauman from Sin Fronteras Media, and I want to invite you to support your local veterans charity. For a list of those that serve veterans in our community, visit sinfron.com forward slash veterans. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore, and we're talking with Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. And uh, thank you for this. We are in the Memorial Day weekend. Uh, you were part of the uh, very first of Mayor Lori Lightfoot's public safety meetings. She was mayor-elect then. Um, how can the county sheriff help Chicago and the summer suburbs uh, deal with the short-term problem of gun violence that plagues uh, our summers? And I'm specifically talking about the immediacy of summertime, more people being out, warm weather. How how does the what role can the sheriff play in partnership with the city? Well, we have the uh, second largest police force in northern Illinois. I mean, the state police has a large police force, but they're spread throughout the whole state. Um, and so, we also have jurisdiction throughout the county. And as I tried to reiterate to people, I go, last I checked, Chicago is in the county, I believe. <laughs> um, and so. We have jurisdiction that goes throughout here, and so whether it's the city of Chicago or the city of Harvey, we have the same mandate that we need to be involved with helping that community dealing with law enforcement issues. So for the last uh, six or seven years, 
we've been very engaged with the city of Chicago, particularly as regards to uh, gun offenses and shootings in the, the areas of the city where those are happening more often. And so uh, originally what I did was I had my police officers embedded with Chicago police officers, literally in the cars with them and, you know, just helping them by giving them additional numbers. About three years ago or so, I really just, I just wanted to change. It wasn't that, that there was anything wrong with that, but I wanted to do it in a different way where we'd be able to measure it better so that I, I'd pick a defined area. I'd put both civilians and police into that area and work a real hard community policing model in that defined area for a period of time. The period of time uh, I was going to let the experts tell me, but we've already been like we're in the 15th district now on the west side of the city and we've been there a year and we're thinking of staying probably another year there as well because the numbers where we go, they're, they're startling, Craig. I mean, th- there's been drops throughout the city as far as shootings and homicides, but in the areas where we go, we are three times the drop of everywhere else. And we specifically picked areas with the highest level of violence. When we picked where to go, we've been in the 6th District, the 3rd District on the south side, and now we've been on the west side now for just about a year and the numbers are startling. And it's not because we're we're good and Chicago's not. No, no, no. We've, we're added more bodies. We're, we're putting civilians into the schools where we meet and talk with kids. We work with the teachers on truancy issues. We're going to the senior centers where we work with the seniors about issues that they're facing. And we go to all the block club meetings. With that, then add another 50 to 100 extra police officers a day patrolling those streets. And most of our, particularly during the summer, most of our officers on the west side, they chose to be on bikes. And so riding up and down the streets on bikes and they love it. And it's just been a great, great um, uh, reaction from the community, A. But the numbers are what the numbers are. I mean, these drops are substantially below numbers that are dropping elsewhere in the city. So this isn't something where, oh, this is similar to drops going on in these other areas. No, no, no. These drops are substantially more. And so we're going to continue our presence there you know, I, I I told the mayor I'm happy to help whatever capacity we can help that, but I she was unaware because this has sort of been kept you know out of the media that we're so involved with crime fighting in the city. Really can't tell you why it doesn't make any sense, but it worked I guess for some people. Um, but I told her whatever I can do, I'm happy to do it. Do I get pulled a little bit? You know, like the town of Harvey right now is having this big big turnover there with a the new mayor, and so we're very engaged there. And other towns, yes, we are, but we're going to keep adding to our presence in the city. Uh, then that raises a, a question because if it is working, is this a pilot program, a one-off experiment? Because all right, what what happens now if you say, "Wow, this worked"? <laughs> we're, we're, you know, it's because it, we were looking at it in that respect. That okay, we're putting this model in place. Let's study it. So we have. Uh, uh, a professor from Northwestern who is, uh, we've given him all our data. He's doing the analysis of it right now. We have the hard data just as far as talking about the drops and numbers. He's doing a much more comprehensive look at it as well. But my goal in answer to your question is, is that to keep expanding it. And, um, to, uh, you know, President Preckwinkle uh, gave me, I think, 50, I think it's 50 additional police officers in this this last budget. So I can add 50 more into there as well. So our strong goal and plan is, is if this keeps working the way it is, and we work hand in glove with the commander of the area, he's fantastic to work with, um, that this keeps working like this, we'll just keep adding to our presence out there. Hmm. I uh, want to touch on at least one more area uh, before we uh, are out of time, because the last time you were on this program, and I will be the first one to uh, confess that it was way too long ago, uh, 
We were talking about the mental health challenges for the jail. We touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but you know, even a lot of national stories back then were taking up uh, your assertion that uh, Cook County Jail is the largest mental health treatment facility in the country. Uh, first off, is it still that? And, and we have to deal with the issue that that's not what it was designed to be. Yeah. It, unfortunately, even with the, the, the steep decrease in the population in the jail, the percentage of the mentally ill coming into the jail has even risen a little bit. Um, hmm. So the hard numbers uh, have gone down, but all populations have gone down. But percentage-wise, not only has that not gone down, it's it's increased. Um, underlying that is this continuous you know, story that doesn't change about deinvesting in community services for the mentally ill. It's just the truth. I mean, I literally have talked to guys who went to clinics that were shut down by the city uh, four years ago or three, four or five years ago, whatever it was. They literally talked to me and they walked me through, Craig, things that all of us would absolutely empathize with. They said, listen, Tom, I went to the same doctor for six years. We connected. It was the first doctor I connected with. He's gone now. And I was like thinking to myself, that would be a problem if that happened to me. And then he's walking me through. He's like, Tom, I don't have a lot of money. And I have to take, I used to be able to walk to the clinic. Now I have to take three different buses. And sometimes I just don't have it in me. And I could see what he's getting at when he's telling me that. And I'm thinking to myself, how many more hurdles do we want to throw in front of this? Here's someone who wants to get help and who's working on it. And we're making it more difficult. And that's just an anecdote. But in general, the amount of resources going in here shrunk. And I've often told people, I go, hey, let's just stop kidding ourselves. This is not something that's happening by accident. You know, this is something everybody knows. You don't fund it here. People will end up in jails and prisons. That's absolutely what will happen because they have nowhere to go. They burnt out their families frequently because of not going on their meds, you know, and going off their meds. They don't have a job. They have nowhere to go. So they're on the streets. They're struggling to survive. Well, who are they going to come in contact with? Probably the people that are least qualified to deal with them. Police departments, because when people sign up to be police officers, they didn't sign up to be social workers. But yet many departments at my department years ago, we trained everybody in CIT training. It's called Mm -hmm. so they can understand these things, know how to deescalate. But nonetheless, it is not what a thoughtful society would ever do. Say, listen, we're going to have police officers be our frontline mental health workers. And then we'll have a guy with a history major run the largest mental health hospital in the uh, state uh, in the country. No thoughtful society would do it. But that's what we're doing. We've put together the programs that are the the model for the country and they all come and watch what we do and they do uh, stories on them all the time. We're happy to do that. And trust me, I love that we're doing that, but it just speaks volumes that we're doing it in the first place. This should be a story coming out of a hospital, not a jail. Yeah. You've now had at least two mental health professionals running. Yeah. We jail. got a new one now. Yes. yes I, 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 I know I, I, I met the first one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but yeah, you, yeah, you a... should meet the new one. She's phenomenal. Uh, and tell tell me tell me who it is so we should give, Amanda, give her a shout is, out. Yeah, Amanda came from out west. We were lucky to get her because she was out in Colorado at the time. And I'll be honest with you, I looked high and low because I have great correctional staff at my office, phenomenal in our office. But I wanted to make it so that the person at the top had a very very broad menu of experiences, not just in corrections. Um, that's not what I wanted. And so I wanted someone with a strong mental health background, strong community background, someone understanding that we're in the mission here of trying to break these cycles, giving people uh, you know, hope, giving them treatment, getting them jobs, getting them back into their communities. And so um, I was lucky to get her, and she's fantastic. We've only got about 30 seconds left. How encouraged are you that in her inauguration speech, uh, 
Mayor Lori Lightfoot said, we have to do something about mental health. I was so excited. The last time I'd seen Lori before she became mayor was at a uh, award ceremony for a mental health group that where she was getting the award because this is something she really believes in. So I, I'm ex- incredibly excited about it. Well, that is going to be the final word. I would like to thank Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart for spending this time with us. To our listeners, if you want a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. Just follow the podcast link and scroll down. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and it should, I believe it will be, Chief Judge Tim Evans, and I hope you will be listening then. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.